Welcome to the Grace Monroe Podcast. We are a community of Jesus followers located in Monroe, Georgia, that exists to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. For more information about our church, visit graceformonroe.com. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this week's message. We are beginning a new series today that will actually be our summer series. And so if you've been a part of Grace for the last few years, uh, we, we love to uh, take the summer across the, all the Grace campuses to be in the same book of the Bible or, or part of the Bible, and also to then, uh, in a sense, um, pulpit swap. We, uh, so there'll be a few different Grace lead pastors and pastors that will be coming to Monroe. I'll be going to other Grace churches uh, across our Grace family. And so uh, over the summer, we will all be diving into the book of Revelation together. So that should be an interesting and fun summer experience, but not just the entire book. We're actually going to focus just on the first four chapters on uh, some letters that Jesus wrote to the church. And so I'm going to just begin here in the first verse of Revelation, and we will dive in. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. <clears throat> John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm going to pause right there. And part of the reason it felt like this was the right place to go for this summer, and uh, like I said, all the, all the different grace churches, um, which if you don't know, by the way, we're celebrating that last Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, uh, we introduced to the grace family of churches two new churches, one in Missouri and one in uh, Tennessee. And so now the grace family has 10 grace uh, churches, not just in Metro Atlanta, but also in D.C. and now going out towards the West. And so uh, be praying for those new churches. And we are super excited about what God is doing as he's continuing to, to grow this family in the things that, may, that we are passionate about, reaching the ne next generation, making disciples, uh, going after the nations, and specifically engaging the Muslim world with the good news of Jesus, uh, raising up the next generation of leaders, the things that drive us as a church family and seeing God continue to expand that. 
And as these new things are happening and, and as we're launching into new endeavors and new places, and then obviously very personally here in Monroe, we are in a brand new season, right? We're in a, a new church campus, this beautiful space. We're, we're launching new ministry. We're coming out of the COVID season into finally uh, uh, back almost into full force again with ministries and mission. That it felt very appropriate to ask God, what are you saying to your church? Now, what do you want us to know in this season? What are you speaking into us as your people, as your family, as your body, your present visible expression of yourself on earth? God, what do you want your church to know? Actually, that thinking about these, uh, these graduates that we just celebrated, and any new season that we find ourselves as we transition into maybe a new job, or that we just got married, or we just had a baby, or, or even as, we, as families launching kids out into a new season of, of empty nesting, as we enter these new seasons of life, I think it is very appropriate that we always pause and ask, okay, God, what do you want me to know now? What are you speaking into my life now? What are you wanting me to embrace or to step into? What do you need to change or correct? God, what do you want me to know? And that word revelation actually, which by the way is not plural, that's the most, I think one of the most mispronounced books of the Bible actually, ironically, since it's easy to say, but revelations is not what it's called, it's revelation. But that word revelation in the Greek is actually the word apocalypto. Say that with me, apocalypto. That was a pathetic uh, showing there. It's not that hard. Apocalypto. There you go. And we uh, get that from that word, the word apocalypse. And it's taken on this under like this uh, cultural expression that what it, that apocalypse is about end times. It's about doomsday scenarios. It is the the germ that wipes out half the population. It is the the walking dead. It is uh, it is the end of all things. But that's actually not what the word means, and it's not what. The book of Revelation, the letter of Revelation, is actually all about. Though it does talk about in things and in times and God bringing to fulfillment the things that he has promised, the day that there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, when death will finally be wiped away. It talks about the end of things, but the word apocalypto doesn't mean in times. Actually, what it means is to uncover, to reveal, to unveil. And so at the beginning of this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ that God is bringing forth. He's bringing into awareness that he is, he is explaining the mystery. He is showing what is going on behind the curtain, so to speak. That Wizard of Oz moment where it seems like all of this stuff is happening, but it's the little guy behind the curtain that God is, Jesus is ripping back the curtain to show what is actually happening. It's important for us to recognize that there is a whole lot going on in the world that we can't see with our own eyes. In fact, I think we just get the tip of the iceberg. I was thinking about that in regards to just you know, our own experience as humans. Like We understand that not even on a spiritual level, but on a very physical level. The reality is, is that, that we only see a tiny portion of the spectrum that we know of as color. In fact, we only see 0.0003% of what would be considered the spectrum that we know of as color. 
And in fact, if all if we just took the little tiny sliver of color that we see and we added a 0.001% to what we see, it would blind us and we would all fall down in amazement and awe. It would feel like the world just exploded in front of us to be just given a tiny glimpse more of the colors that we can't even see. And here in this book, this letter to the churches, it's as if God is pulling back the curtain just a little bit. And John, he's giving John a vision to see what is, what is actually happening. He's just giving a little glimpse so that we can have the more, a greater understanding and awareness of the things going on in the world around us. So John is there, it says on the Lord's day on a Sunday, and he's in the spirit, meaning that he has the capacity to be in tune with, in touch with the heart of God by his Holy Spirit. And John, listening to Jesus, talk to him personally, which is the invitation for us. It said that in any new season, as as individuals or as family, we need to be asking God, God, what do you want us to know? What are you unveiling? What are you uncovering? What are you wanting me to see that I can't see right now? But as a church, it felt appropriate to ask that for us as a whole. And this is the only place in the Bible that God, I mean, sorry, that Jesus explicitly addresses his church. I mean, there's letters to the churches written by Paul or Peter, Timothy or Titus, to Timothy or Titus, uh, that written by the brother of Jesus, James. But here we get the voice of God, the voice of Jesus talking directly to his church. So to set it up a little bit, <clears throat> we'll be going over the, next, uh, over the next eight weeks. There's seven specific letters written to seven specific churches. And each week we'll dive into one of those letters. And just so you know, today I'm gonna just kind of give an, a, an overview of the book itself, of Revelation, and what God is doing here. But John is actually writing this letter. Where he is, he's on an island called Patmos, and that's off the coast of, uh, of Turkey there, and he, uh, he's been exiled. He's actually the last surviving of the original 12 apostles. All of the other ones have been executed. He's watched his closest friends uh, as each one of them has been arrested and tortured and killed in awful ways. And he is the last remaining one. And even he now has been in prison. He's sent to this sort of a, uh, a concentration camp on this island. So he's not living, it's not like an island life that you would think of that you want when you retire. I mean, this is a miserable existence. And yet even in this place of isolation, in this place of attack and persecution, God shows up to give him a word. And so in that sense, too, it felt very appropriate, not just that we're in a new season as a church, and God, what are you speaking to your church? But we have been in a season as a nation, as a world that has felt isolated, chaotic, tumultuous, confusing, the same exact circumstances that John found himself in when Jesus shows up and speaks a word. And so John, in the spirit there on that Sunday morning, Jesus shows up and pulls back the curtain a little bit. Speaking to these seven churches. 
And the word seven, or the number seven, has a lot of significance in the Bible, but, but mainly it, it carries this idea of completion, of wholeness. And so, yes, these are very personal letters to seven specific churches that addresses seven specific challenges that they are facing, but it's also his letter to the church, to all of us. It's a letter that still speaks over the ages, 2,000 years later. It's, yes, there's seven churches that God was speaking to 2,000 years ago in the area of Turkey, stretching between Greece and the Holy Land, but that letter still continues to carry forward. And now Jesus is speaking to his little church in Monroe, Georgia in 2021. And over and over again, in these letters, this phrase shows up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. Which is an interesting phrase. It's not talking about physical hearing, but the capacity to hear from God. And so in other words, he who can hear, she who can hear, it's all of us. All of us are invited to lean in. All of us are invited to listen. We all have the capacity to hear from God, to hear the voice of Jesus. And so let's lean in and see what God has for us today and for this summer. I'm gonna continue on in verse nine. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love that John, who could claim all kinds of titles and authority, the last remaining apostle, the, the, the planter, or the, the, the father of many of these churches, that he doesn't claim any of that, but just simply calls himself a brother and a companion. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone who was like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a, a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A beautiful, powerful picture 
of the risen and ascended Jesus. John hears a voice behind him and he turns, I love that phrase, to see the voice. And he's confronted with an image that he's trying his best to capture and to put into words. One who, like a son of man, his face glowing as if we were trying to stare directly into the sun, his feet on fire, his voice like the sound of it, the greatest waterfall you can imagine. This magnificent vision. But of all the things that he sees in this vision of the risen Jesus, it's the voice that he gives the most attention to. Actually, there's three different descriptions that he's trying to, to, to give life to or words to this voice that he heard. He says that it's like a trumpet. He says that it's, it's like a sharp, double-edged sword. And he says that it's like rushing waters, like a waterfall. I love that as he sees Jesus and hears from Jesus, it says that he falls down on his face as though dead. It calls to mind that story in Exodus where, where Moses is begging to get a glimpse of God and God says, you can't see me. If you did, you would, it would kill you. And so instead, God, God uh, covers over Moses in the cleft of a rock. And as he's hiding there, he tells him, you can just get the barest glimpse of, of the, the trail of my glory as I go by. You can just get a hint of my voice as I pass you because anything more would kill you. And yet here, God who took on flesh, Jesus, the word that dwelt among us, crucified, risen, and ascended, that this Jesus now we are able to see clearly, to know fully, to hear, to follow this experience, this encounter, this vision, this voice that should have killed him. Instead, Jesus leans forward and says, stand up, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. The glory, the power, the magnificent God comes in close. And the voice that speaks so we're going to just focus on that voice for just a few more minutes a few, this morning. Because I think it's that voice that speaks to us, both individually and collectively as a, as a church. I think it's a voice that wants to uncover, to unveil some things for us over the course of this summer. So his voice is like a trumpet. Now, there's all kinds of different ways that people... Uh, interpret revelation. And, uh, and sometimes they can get pretty fantastic. You know, descriptions of helicopters and battleships. And maybe that's what it's about. But typically, the best way to interpret scripture is actually with scripture. 
And so we look at the Bible to see what the Bible says about the Bible. When the Bible is giving imagery, we look to the Bible to figure out in places where uh, other places where that imagery was used so that we can come up and understand, all right, God, what are you talking about here? Now, maybe there's all kinds of other layers and mysteries that we don't quite understand or know. And actually, I would say, absolutely, there are all kinds of other mysteries and, and, and layers that we can't fully understand and grasp. But we can go back and see a few things. And one thing that we see about the trumpet in the Bible is that over and over again, the trumpet was used to call attention to God speaking a word, to God beginning something new. And Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, as Moses is going up to receive the Ten Commandments, the law, the letter of God to his people, the blessing of God's covenant for his people. It says that that, the trumpet blasted across the mountain and all the people stood around the mountain, called to attention for the presence of God to make himself known. In Numbers 10, We're told that the trumpet was to be used by the priest in the temple to call all the people to come meet with God. That when you heard the trumpet sound, you showed up in the place where the presence of God dwelled because God wanted you to know something. When kings were being announced, the trumpet was blown to call people to attention, to attend this remarkable event. It was the voice that was calling us to attention. The trumpets were used as sounds of celebration and praise. The trumpets were also used to signal an alarm. Remember, Nehemiah, as he's building the wall, it says that he stationed the, the trumpeteer to, to beside him as he built so that if they came under attack, he could immediately sound alarm and all the troops could rush to that side to defend In Joel 2 and in Jeremiah, it speaks of the trumpet of God sounding an alarm to his people. And so maybe today, it's not just that we need to be called to attention to something that God wants to draw attention to in our lives, but maybe there's some things that we need to get alarmed by. Maybe today the voice as it speaks into our heart, into our world, into our church is there's something that we need to go, okay, we're under attack here. There's something we need to be aware of. There's something that we need to be alarmed by. There's something we need to wake up to. But also the trumpet, it was used to call to attention. It was used to to sound the alarm, but also the trumpet was used to sound an attack. In Jericho, you remember them marching around the city seven times, blowing, and when they blew the trumpet on the seventh time, the walls came down. And as Christians, we are not called to attack, as Benji did such a great job uh, last Sunday talking about, we're not called to attack uh, via social media or with our words to, to undermine or to be hostile to our neighbor or those that we disagree with. The way that we attack as Christians is on our knees. It's in prayer. It's the spiritual battles and breakthroughs that we need God to show up. It's the spiritual walls that we need him to tear down. The only attack we are called to is against the kingdom of darkness. Those things that war against God's love and grace and presence and peace. Are there places that God is wanting to press the attack in your life? in your family, 
to tear down walls, for breakthrough. The trumpet, but also the sword. And we see in Hebrews, the, the word of God, Hebrews 12, 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This sharp, double-edged sword that's coming from the mouth of Jesus. As Hebrews says, a sword so sharp that it's able to separate the inseparable. You can't separate your body from your soul. You can't separate bone from marrow. If you cut into a bone, you can't tell where the bone ends and the marrow begins. And yet here we have a voice. Here we have the word of God that is so piercing, so sharp that it can divide the inseparable. And there may be some things in your life that feel like there is no way you could ever be separated from them. And maybe we've walked through life assuming that we can never change in these areas. These things can never be cut off from me. It's like bone and marrow. These things can never be divided from me. This addiction, this behavior, a personality trait that has become such a familiar part of a li our life, a burden that we carry or a burden that we, that we are to others. These things that feel like they'll never go away. And the word of God says that it can cut through to the very things that they feel like they can never be peeled off of you. It's who you are now, but God's word can come in and cut off those things, divide those things, separate those things. I mean, you can't change yourself and I can't change myself, but the word of God is sharp enough to separate you, even from the things you feel like you can't get away from, your past, your struggle, the long shadows cast from your childhood, the way you've embraced an identity that God didn't give you, but you feel like you can't get away from. You're not a failure. You're not a loser. You're not abandoned. You are not alone. You are not unloved. You are not forgotten. Where does the word of God, as it calls us to attention, maybe as it sounds an alarm, where does God need to cut from you things that you have taken on that he never meant, intended for you to carry. It's not only sharp, but it's also useful. It's a double-edged sword, which would have called to mind uh, the gladiolus that the Roman soldiers carried, this short, thick sword that they used for all kinds of things. Yes, it was a weapon that they used in battle, but also it was a tool that they used to, to cut everything from wood to meat. The word of God is useful, it's applicable. It's not just helpful on Sunday morning to get a few spiritual nuggets. It's helpful on Tuesday morning when we're in the office, 
when we're going into staff meeting, when we're teaching that group of third graders, when we're having a conversation with our toddler. The word of God is useful all the time. It's useful at your lunch break on Tuesday. It's not just applicable to your eternal salvation. It can help you with your marriage, with your job, with your children, with your friendships. What is God giving attention to? What is he sounding an alarm about? What what is he speaking into in the different areas of our life? So it is sharp, it is useful, but it's also able to pierce. Jesus had said that anyone who reads these words aloud is blessed, so I will receive that blessing. Thank you, Lord. But also to all who hear it and do something with it, you too are blessed. What is this word of God today piercing into our hearts? And then lastly, the word, the voice that was like a trumpet, this voice that is like a sharp double-edged sword, this voice is also like rushing water like a giant waterfall. If you've ever been to a place where you've been at uh, a massive waterfall, have you ever gone to uh, Niagara Falls? Um, You know that when you're standing there, you can hardly hear the person that's talking next to you. I had the opportunity when I was... uh, a senior in college to go to, to Southern Africa. And one of the places I got to visit was Victoria Falls, the largest, considered the largest uh, waterfall on, on the planet because of the amount of water that's rushing over. And as we drove up, miles away, you could feel the ground starting to shake. Like that scene in Jurassic Park, you know, and the step and the, water, the glass trembles. You could feel the ground start to rumble. And and from miles away, you could see the mist of the force of the water as it, like the clouds in the sky, as it just raised up out from the horizon. As we went to, got closer and closer and that rumbling and that shaking, that thundering, that felt like it moved from under your feet to inside of you, the force of the water. We can get a sense of the majesty, the the power of what John is trying to capture when he talks about this voice of Jesus. But what does it mean? And like I said, to understand uh, the, the words, the pictures being used, we need scripture to interpret scripture. And so we go to the other place, one of the, the what would have been well known to the original readers where God's voice like a waterfall. If you'll turn with me to Ezekiel. If you can't find it in your Bible, it's totally okay to use the table of contents. Ezekiel 43. And this is a word I feel like God is speaking to our church for this season that we enter into. Ezekiel 43, and then we'll look at 47. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. 
And I saw the glory of God, the God of Israel, coming from the east. And his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. As the prophet Ezekiel was, uh, he was a servant and of a king, a well-educated man, but that, uh, his words were calling the people too. In fact, they consider Ezekiel also apocalyptic literature, it's, or an apocalyptic word from God, a prophetic word of what is and what is to come. But the word would have been shocking more than we can pick up on here. The moment that Ezekiel said that the glory of God was coming from the east, because biblically, nothing good comes from the east. The east is where the foreigners live, not the friend. The east is where the sinners live, not the saints. The east is where Esau went to live, not Jacob. It wasn't the place of the promises of God. It was the place of the curses of God, not the place of blessing. And yet from the east, the glory of God is shining forth. The manifest presence of God, that word glory means literally the weight, the substance of God. That amazing sense that God is in the room and that we should be on our faces. That glory of God coming from the east and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And what does that voice do? We'll flip forward a couple more pages to uh, Ezekiel 47. God kind of zooms out and he, and he shows Ezekiel, he takes him to the top of the temple mount where the, the temple was built, where the presence of God dwelled with his people, where the, the glory of God was meant to be assigned to the nations. And Ezekiel sees a trickle of water coming out from under the doorway of the most holy place. And it comes past the altar of God where the sacrifices are made. And it goes towards the east gate. And then it turns to the south. It goes out the gate that the pilgrims would leave as they left the temple. You come in the north gate and you go out the south gate. And, and so the place that the pilgrims would leave from, the, this, this, this water is beginning to flow out of the temple. The Spirit of God now going out with the people as they leave the place of worship to go back into the world. And the water turns towards the south, towards the Dead Sea. In Ezekiel, it's called the Arabah, which literally just means the Great Depression, the giant ditch. And at the bottom of this great ditch, the Arabah, this Great Depression, are the remains of the ruined cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the Dead Sea that is so dead, so salty that nothing can live in it or even near it. If you come with us on Epic, or you go to the Holy Land next spring, we'll be hopefully taking a trip there again. You'll get a chance to, to float in the Dead Sea. And again, and as I mean, it's a fun experience. I, I mean, as Ezekiel's writing, he's not writing it as a tourist attraction, but the, the Dead Sea is... Uh, 
your body, there's just, there's no weight to your body. You literally just float there and you kind of have to kind of keep your body, uh, uh, you know, balanced because you're so buoyant. But the one thing they tell you is do not get the water in your eyes. Like in all the fun and, and the joking, this one is serious because one tiny little drop of that water in your eyes, it burns and it can even blind you. It is so salty. As you drive up to the Dead Sea, there is no vegetation. There is no greenery. There is no plant life. There's water everywhere. And we see this trickle of water as it makes its way out the gate with the, from the presence of God, with the people of God. And where does that go? To the places, to the low places, the dead places. And as the water moves, in verse 8, it flows to the east towards the Arabah and empties into the sea. And we're told that when it enters the sea, the water becomes fresh. And there is life that flourishes in the place that was formerly dead. There's abundance in the place that was barren. There's a river flowing from the house of God flowing with the people as they are moved by God towards the east, towards the place of the foreigners, towards the place of the sinners, towards the places of those who would formerly be considered cursed and forgotten. And that water, that river flows down. And how far down? further down than any other place on the planet. You may not know this, but the lowest spot of earth is the Dead Sea. Almost 1,400 feet below sea level. And the Temple Mount, where the water is flowing from, rises almost 2,500 feet above sea level. And so as the water moves from the Temple Mount to the Dead Sea, from the high place to the lowest places, it would have made the greatest waterfall the world has ever seen. 10 times as large as Victoria Falls, more than 20 times bigger than the Niagara. It would be the greatest waterfall in the history of the world. And as that water flows, Jesus is speaking with the voice of many waters that brings life and flourishing and abundance into the places everyone would have given up on and forgotten and left and ignored. In Ezekiel 47, what's it saying? That, that at first it is simply ankle deep, and then it's waist deep. And eventually you have to swim. The word of God is always challenging you to go deeper. And going beyond the challenge and, and calling you to recognize that the spirit of God with the word of God recreates in us so that death becomes life. The Dead Sea becomes something different or swarms of living creatures, large number of fish. And where that river flows, everything will live. Creating something that you can never change. And eventually the river becomes so vast and furious 
that you can't even swim. And it's only at the point that you can't control what is happening that the Spirit is able to do the miraculous. And in this dead place, verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. You are with a God who promises life. But he takes you to the edge of a place where it seems like you can't survive, that you can't control. And you can't do it without him. There will be a point that God brings you to, and I think a point that God brings us to as a church, where we just simply have to surrender. And he's saying, will you go with me to these places? So the Lord is saying, can we uncover our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? And maybe... Our prayer right now is, Lord, help uncover my ears. Help me to listen. Where are you taking me? Where are you moving me? What are you shaking up in me? Where are you piercing? What are you cutting off? God, what are you inviting me to? What are you alarming me about? And you'll see, and I encourage you this week, and as we say most weeks, that way more important than anything that I'm saying from up here is you getting with God and letting his voice speak to you through his word. And so I encourage you to read these seven letters this week and ask God, God, what do you want me to know? What are you, what are you speaking to me? But I want you to notice in those seven letters that they all are, follow the same structure. They all start with a picture of Jesus. They all have an affirmation or encouragement. Then there's some correction or warning. And then they close with a promise. And I believe into our lives and into our church, God is doing the same thing. That there are things that he is wanting us to, that he's calling forth a picture of Jesus. It's interesting, every one of the pictures of Jesus that begins at those letters, all of them come from the picture of Jesus that John saw in the first chapter. But each church gets a little part of the picture. In other words, all of us carry, and us as a church, we carry a unique facet of who Jesus is. There's something about Grace Monroe that we are to reveal about the heart and the nature and the character of God, of Jesus to the world, that is unique to this place. Something about First Baptist, something about 1025 and, and Greystone, that, that we each carry a unique expression of who God is for this place, that his glory would be made known in a unique way here. And the same is true for you. Yes, we are all children of God. Yes, we are all called to be encouragers. Yes, we are all mighty warriors. Yes, we are all uh, no longer condemned, but stand victorious. But every one of you, there's a unique facet of the character and nature of God that you carry for the world. And when God brings these unique facets together like this, there is something fresh. There's something new. There's something powerful that God is bringing forth into the world, like a waterfall that flows into the dead places and changes where it goes. We are called by God to know him and to make him known. What is that picture of Jesus that you are called to be, that we are called to be? What are the places that he's moving us? What is he affirming? 
in your life and in the life of this church that he's saying, good job. Well done there. Oh, I see how you're speaking into your children's lives. I see how you're relating to your spouse. I see how you're enduring the challenges at work. What is the affirmation for you that God has? I think sometimes we think that when God speaks, it's going to be all just a list of things that we need to change and do better. But what's God affirming you in? What does God want you to know? Well done. Keep on. You're doing it. I'm proud of you. But then there also is a correction, a cutting off. What are the things that, that we need to be aware of that God might be saying, hey, listen, you're letting this creep into your life. Hey, you're taking this a little too loosely. We need to deal with that. And maybe the way you're talking to your children, the way you're relating to your little wife, the way you're dealing with that challenge at work. And then last, there's a promise. God holds out a promise. If we will listen to that voice, let it take root in our hearts and move us forward. He who has ears, let him listen to the word God is speaking to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this journey we are beginning into this incredible book, a book that you tell us that there will be a blessing in our lives if we read and we take to heart these things that you spoke. So God, even right now, for each person sitting here, your sons and your daughters, each one that you know better than they know themselves, may your word living and active sharper than any double-edged sword God, what are you wanting them to know even right now? Will you speak that word into their hearts, into their minds? Will you call attention to what you're doing? Will you sound the alarm if there's anything that they need to be warned about or aware of? Will you cut off anything that doesn't belong there? So even right now, just in your own heart, just between you and Jesus, just ask that question. God, what do you want me to know? What are you speaking? Where are you leading me? What are you doing? And Father, may we be the kind of people that listen attentively and respond accordingly by your Holy Spirit in us. In the name of Jesus, the blessed and true one, amen. Thanks for listening. Once again, our mission at Grace Monroe is to pursue God's heart for the restoration of all things. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, go to graceformonroe.com connect. Also, if you felt blessed by our ministry and want to partner with us financially, everything you need to know about giving is online at graceformonroe.com give. We hope you have a wonderful week. Be blessed.